0: Welcome to Trial Tested, a podcast by the American College of Trial Lawyers. Trial Tested is a discussion about life and law created to elevate and inspire trial attorneys. My name is Dave Paul and I will be your host for today's episode. Good morning, I'm here today with Rusty Harden. Rusty is a graduate of Wesley Land University. He attended law school at SMU. He served our country in the military. He's been a high school, was it high school? I know you taught history. Yeah, high school history teacher. High school history
1: teacher. Actually I
0: taught seventh, ninth and 12th, so I was both. Rusty has been married for since 1970, which would mean? 50 years. Congratulations. Sure. He has started his career as a prosecutor, and the rumor is that he was 100 wins and zero losses. I don't know if that's accurate or not. It's probably fairly accurate, but I never take any credit for that because the prosecutor, as you
1: know, chooses what they try. I mean, if they think they've got a wrong bad case, they can dismiss it. And uh, it's
0: not quite like it is in the civil world, as you know. Yes. And then uh, you've served as a special appointed counsel for Whitewater with Bob Fisk, who I have had the privilege of interviewing. Um, He's my ideal of what a lawyer should be. I can't even finish your intro. I got to ask you about that. (laughs) What is it about Bob Fisk for you that you would say he's the ideal?
1: I think he thinks solely about what's right.
0: And in
1: his professional life and and in the way he treats those that he works with, and then as he got older and more successful, those who worked for him. I've never known anybody that takes so much care in looking after those he asked to work for him, whether it's a particular job or whether it's his law firm. For everybody that ever worked with him that leaves Davis Polk, he takes them always to lunch as they leave to wish them luck, talk to them, et cetera. There's no person too small for him to give attention to.
0: You remember <laughs> when Bob Fisk called you to ask you if you would uh, serve as trial counsel for the Whitewater matter against then-President Bill Clinton? Yeah, I do. And I was surprised,
1: I was shocked by it, really, because, of course, I didn't know him. He didn't know me. I later found out that Harry Reasoner also a member of the college and a hugely successful, outstanding lawyer in his own right, is the one who gave him my name. what I've heard, I'm not sure. But he called and it was out of the blue. I had only been in private practice from being a state court prosecutor. This is 94 and I started my practice in 91 after leaving the DA's office. So I'd only been in private practice three years. There was just four of us at that time, or I think maybe four people in the firm with me. Yeah, I remember it. Did you consider saying no? No, I never did. You know, I liked Bill Clinton from afar. Obviously, I didn't know him. So it wasn't like I was motivated to go get Bill Clinton. That's actually a fun question because, no, never occurred to me to say no.
0: I thought it was an honor. (laughs) Well, and that's really something that intrigues me. So in your time at the prosecutor's office, 19 years? No, 15 and a quarter. 15 and a quarter. So in those 15 years that you're at the prosecutor's office did you envision being a a lifetime prosecutor it was kind of a fun evolutionary deal
1: because i was going to be a defense attorney was my thought process initially when i graduated law school i'd started a criminal law students association my second year law school and We'd bring speakers in, we'd organize tours of the prison system. At that time, they hadn't had a bill riot that they later had in the Texas prison system so you could actually go show people. I mean, we would be escorted around, then we'd meet with the warden at the end of the night. And we organized all kinds of things for people at SMU that were interested in one day practicing criminal law. So I was gonna go to be a prosecutor for three years for trial experience, and then I was gonna go into private practice, And as I used to say, save the world. And uh, Houston required a three-year commitment at that time. So you just had to orally say, hey, if you hire me, I'll stay three years. I've always thought that was a good idea because it takes at least that time to get the benefit. And then I just kind of reorganized in my mind the part of the world I wanted to save. I never anticipated enjoying prosecution like I did, but I loved it. And I loved that office. The district attorney was a guy named Carol Vance. He was so far ahead. Mm-hmm. I mean, he put me two years into this deal. He put me in charge of a new position to not only try cases, but to set up a training program for the office and increase minority recruitment. Well, this is in Houston, Texas in 1977. And he's wanting to increase minority representation in the office. He was a really important deal. The National College of District Attorneys was founded and used to be at the University in Houston. And so it turned out to be a great office. I was never, even after him, with the successes, I was never asked to prosecute somebody because of who they were or to not prosecute somebody because of who they were. And if you had a case that you yourself had real doubts about, you went to the trial bureau and it said, as soon as you invoked the canon of ethics in that office, boom. I mean, that was it. You were not going to be asked to do anything you didn't believe in. So the case would either maybe move to another prosecutor Or it would be dismissed. And that prosecutor, if they thought it should be dismissed, it was just the duty to seek justice was taken incredibly seriously. So I loved it. So I ended up staying over 15 years. I really only left, David, because it was time for it to be my office or me to do something else. And I liked the DA. I thought he was good. We were the same age. I wasn't going to run against him. And there was nothing else left for me to do. So that's how it
0: so I left at 49. So it's a little late to start over. So in a hypothetical world, yeah. if you today, money's not an object, energy's not an object, you can have whatever team you want, that your dream job in the legal field, if you were King of the world, and you could pick anything. Is it prosecuting? Is it defending? Is it corporate? What role would that be? It's staying where I am now, but not because of money. Obviously, if money
1: was the issue, I wouldn't have waited to 49. And I would have people come along and say, man, you're wasting whatever ability you have. You know, it's time for you to get out in the private world. So I said, I'm not wasting it if I'm enjoying it. And I'm not wasting it if I believe in it. So I'll go when I feel like it's time. And it took me a year or two to wind down from it. Those of us who were serious, really totally into being prosecutors as a profession, it's not an easy transition psychologically in the sense that it takes a while to get rid of that high. I used to tell prosecutors, look, you have the potential and the ability to do great good, but you have the potential and ability also to do great harm. Mm-hmm. And you've got to always remember that and keep that balance. So when you have a job that allows you to have that kind of discretion, and we did, then it's a liberating
0: feeling. I'm going to take a shot at direct with you. So when I think of your career and I look at small town from North Carolina, clearly raised with strong principles by your family. I see the military service and I know a little bit of the story behind military service. I see teaching. And then I see Texas trial lawyers. So I see the the boy from North Carolina who gets raised in a small town. I see the Texas trial lawyer. I see the prosecutor, what most shapes, how you try cases, which piece of you where I grew up.
1: First of all, the parents, I mean, look, if you are close to your parents, you owe tremendous amounts to them, no matter what profession you pick. And I'm certainly in that situation. I think one of the best trainings for trial lawyers to grow up in a small town, because whether it's racial matters or whether it's economic matters or social issues or what, you go to school with and you're around average people. That's who's on juries. And I always live in fear of forgetting where I came from. And so I've always tried to remember how would the average person that I grew up with react to this set of facts? I've said many times, and it really is not self-deprecating. I've been lucky enough to have a certain degree of success. I'll concede that. But I think it's because I'm an average person. And people think, oh, you're just trying to be modest. No, I'm not. There are a lot brighter lawyers than I am. There are a lot better lawyers, I think, than I am in, in many areas. If I've been lucky enough to have any success, it's been because... I hear things like I think the average person does. If the lawyers can get them oriented toward the justice system, whether it's civil or criminal, as you probably know, we're about eighty-five percent civil trial work now. When they call the jury over, it's the same world, and when they put them in the box, it's the same world. When I had another trial since then, what it made me more relieved about is, it's still about communicating with the average person. Average person still coming down and sitting at the jury. And trial lawyers need to be really the carrier of personality. And that doesn't mean joking around or whatever, but it does mean that thing we always tell everybody, try to be yourself. There's a litany of little embarrassing moments I've had during trial. And the question becomes is, how do you handle them when it happens? I tell people, juries are like kids in the best sense of the word. Kids sense when you are trying to be somebody you're not, and juries do. And kids will forgive somebody they think like them, and so will juries. And so part of that deal is to communicate to them, hey, look, this is serious stuff, but we're all in this together, and it's not going to be anywhere near as bad as you thought it was when you were standing out
0: there waiting to come in, because that's the way they feel. So it's almost your desire to like them more than their desire to like you. I guess what I'm hearing from that is more of you focusing on how do I like these people? And then the byproduct of you liking them and you trying to connect with them is then back in return. Yeah, your I think
1: that's a great way to put it. And the reason is, is, is that I've always shake my head when I hear people say, oh, I've got to go pick a jury. Really? I think I'm going to get to meet 40 people I never met.
0: <laughs> yeah. You're a people person, introvert yeah. or extrovert
1: extrovert. But again, they also recognize when you're being falsely friendly, they will react well to a stiff person. If that person communicates integrity and honesty and well-meaning and that they believe in what they're doing, a stiff person can still succeed. So it's not a requirement to be an
0: extrovert as a trial lawyer. You know, it's just being authentic to who you really are. Exactly. Yes. You mentioned Arthur Anderson, your client's, when you kind of look across your private practice from 1991, we think of Arthur Anderson and the Enron scandal. But then we go to such a wide range of other clients, ranging from, you know, the State Bar of Texas related to a lawyer prosecution cases, specially appointed prosecutor, Warren Moon, former quarterback of the Houston Oilers, Roger Clemens. This state involving Anna Nicole Smith, Deshaun Watson, Aaron Peterson, Scotty Pippen, Rudy Tomjanovich, you know, Victoria Osteen. What are your rules, to the extent you have rules, for which clients you're willing to represent and which you're not? Oh, that's a good question. And, you know, when I first went into private
1: practice, there was misunderstanding about some people saying, well, he says he's only going to represent innocent people. That's going to be a small practice. (laughs) (laughs) We take whatever comes in the door, as long as it doesn't require you to be unethical. Whether or not you like the person or not, it's irrelevant. But I decided since I was starting it late in life, I would see if I could do what I did as a prosecutor. I dismissed cases I didn't believe in as a prosecutor or didn't file them. So what if I'm trying to just see? I'll just represent people I like. Sometimes they'll have money and sometimes they won't. Most of the time they will have enough, but then you make compromises on that too. But i wanted this morning to look forward to who I was going to work to try to help. And I believe that we have an obligation in the profession to represent anybody a judge asks us to. So that... I don't have any standard as to who I would. I mean, the court has asked me to judge. We'll the judge
0: asked you to do it. You, you, you do, it do it as a... Yeah. You do
1: it. But if I'm going to get paid for it, my view is everybody has a right to a lawyer. They just don't have a right to me because I'm going to be paid for something. If I were appointed, it's irrelevant. But if I'm going to be paid, then I want it to be something I'm comfortable with. And there are two reasons for that. One is I just don't want to spend my time that way on somebody that's just a classic jerk or that it is some type of an offense that I know they've done that I can't, I just let them get somebody else. And the other reason is I've learned I'm not any good as a trial lawyer pursuing a verdict that I don't believe in. When I first went into private practice, my big fear was I was going to be a rape victim on the stand who I believed was telling the truth, and my perception was my job was going to be to cast doubt on what she said. That was my nightmare. After about five years, I realized, hey, you know, none of those cases ever came in. It was always like there was a self-selection process mm-hmm. out there somewhere. I learned that there's certain cases that I ought to steer away from because I won't have my heart in it, and therefore I won't be as good. If sincerity is one of your traits that you think A jury has noticed in the past and relates to I can't be sincere because I'm not an actor all right I've always stayed away from delivery of drug cases because they're out there making money off of it they can hire anybody they want they don't need me and I don't I don't want to help them all right again judge appointment I would do it rape cases I've maybe done two or three but
0: I had to believe they didn't do it. And it circulates with the result. Here's where I want to start talking about trials in particular. If you had to pick and you get a pick for whatever standard you want, the trial that you are most proud of in the course of your career, it could be a prosecutor, could be civil, could be criminal, you're most proud of it, what would it be? Wow.
1: I don't think I have one. I mean, I have some, I don't think I have one. And I remember as a prosecutor, I mean, these people don't know about it now, would remember it, but several women gang raped by the same four guys when I was a prosecutor, minority women that were absconded each time coming out of their apartment at night in the dark, separate trials on about three or four of them. I can't remember where it was three or four what it meant to those women that these guys all were convicted in four different trials and three different whatever wherever it is, and got life, each one of them. It was just incredibly satisfying because it proved to me what I've since said other times and tell victims in a civil case or others that are in a personal situation about a sexual matter, it won't be as hard as you think it's going to be. The system has made accommodations to rape victims, sexual assault victims in terms of what can and cannot come in, et cetera. And you're going to feel a relief when it's over because you're going to feel like you did all you could to do something about it. And there's a sense of justification and coming forward because most women that endure it feel guilty. I'm just a layperson talking about this. I don't mean to be talking about medical observations, they always feel guilty about not coming forward and trying to make sure he can't do it again.
0: So there's almost, a, you were able to experience them having like some healing. Exactly. Let's okay. go to private practice. Most of the, since 1991, you've tried more than 70 trial, civil, criminal. I don't know if that's the right number, but I know it's a lot. Yeah, it's getting into the 80s. I think if you go the one year, it doesn't have to be the one that was most public, but you're most proud.
1: I'd have to think about that a little bit, because sometimes when you change the narrative about somebody who's a public person, it's tremendously gratifying. You know, Clemens was a big deal to me because I knew and believed he wasn't guilty and the whole world believed he was and it seems like they still believe And it. the baseball writers still do, and maybe the majority. That's a sad thing, right? The judge who presided over that judge told me recently in a phone conversation that he was a panelist on the CLE thing. I loved this judge. I loved him. And nobody would have been able to tell it during trial because we were periodically at each other. Reggie Walton. And Reggie Walton told me in a phone conversation, he and another federal judge, that at a CLE, He had recently done, he was asked about the Clemens case, and he did the CLE with Mike Antanasio, who's a great trial lawyer in his own right. Judge Walton was asked, uh, do you think Roger Clemens ought to be in the Hall of Fame? Hmm. And he said he was found not guilty, wasn't he? I mean, to him, it's pretty simple, right? It was pretty simple. The system spoke. He rigidly made sure that we had a fair trial, but that the government had a fair trial. When that trial was over, I had no idea of what he thought about whether Roger Clemens was. I don't know to this day what he thought about that, but he believes in the system, and the system said he wasn't guilty. So why is he still being punished? You know, and that's a good lesson. When you go into the belly of the beast, which is the public perception, somebody's done something wrong, whether it's civil or criminal. You know, Deshaun Watson's issues right now are civil. You know, that all started, it wasn't criminal. And there are these initial public reactions that you can't get rid of. The only place, the only salvation is in the courtroom. And that's a civil and criminal matter. It's not just a criminal matter. And what people forget is is that when there is a public allegation about somebody who has some public reputation, and it could, as I said repeatedly, it could be something civil just as easily could be something criminal. The world has changed to such a degree with social media. You can no longer get out in front of the story. And I think social media has made the role of the lawyer, particularly the trial lawyer, even more critical for that reason. I knew from the beginning of Roger Clemens because it lasted so long. That's another reason that Roger Clemens only chance was a courtroom.
0: And even then, as you say, you're right, that hasn't solved the issue. But it's because the belief of everyone is that every single person that thrived and excelled during the time period that Roger Clemens was thriving and excelling, because so many other people were juicing, it they just assumed he must have.
1: You're Right. And plus, you add to that the fact that so many of those that were juicing adamantly had denied it, just like he did, and then later admitted they had lied and they did do it. What was the key moment in the trial? When the accuser testified. I'd say to a lot of people, there are a lot of highs in a trial. Nothing for me matches Cross, And that was always what so infuriated me about the prosecution. You had a guy with all of this baggage, and he's your only piece of evidence. And the physical evidence that they're claiming was created by him. So it's created by a totally untrustworthy person. And Mike Anancio did a super job who's also a member of the college now. He did a super job on dealing with the physical evidence as to what happened with the experts and everything to totally get rid of that. But McNamee himself on the stand, I still use an easel a lot. You know, if we do all the big technological Showtime stuff, but I still like an easel. Easels are nice. Easels are nice. <laughs> and so the easel had truth, mistake, and lie. I think those are the three things. I just put three columns. It just occurred to him. It wasn't planned. So I went up and read it. That. And so I said, now, how about so-and-so? Because he made a bunch of statements and a lot of everyone. Which one was that? Well, that was the truth. So I would put a single mark down there. And then say, what about so-and-so?
0: Hmm. <laughs>
1: He really got into it. Okay. And he, so, he's like, was it a mistake? Should so yeah, I acknowledge and said, it was a mistake? Uh, that's probably a lie. <laughs> that's a mark. And it'd be a mistake. And so we had, you know, this and we had crosses and stuff with each one of them. So when the cross is over, Judge Walton did something that I've really touted to other people, that, but judges still aren't really doing it that much. We let the jury take notes. But he also let them ask questions.
0: Yes, and I had never had that before. Very common in Florida. Uh, Although at what we have found, because it's been a routine part, is unless the judge reiterates it throughout the trial, most of the time the jurors don't ask questions. The judge has to reiterate, "Are there any questions?" Well, and this jury asked a lot. Yes, <laughs> yes, 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 and we we did not want we did not want
1: jurors who knew anything about baseball. Okay. Because anybody that was a baseball fan had already made up their mind. And that turned out to be true. So these people were learning about baseball during the trial too. But they were great. So the way you do it is you do direct, cross, redirect, but you couldn't do any recross. That's the way you control the trial. Well, that's a disadvantage for the defendant because most of the witnesses ordinarily, of course, are the government witnesses. But we learned to adapt to that. And then after the redirect, then he would say, does the jury have any questions? And the bailiff would go up and get their paper. And they'd take him at the bench and he would turn the white noise on and lawyers would go up to the bench and he would read them the question. And if either side objected, he did not ask the witness, but he asked the witness the questions that got cleared. And what was cleared is if neither side objected, what of them was. So back in the way he's almost on and one of the questions was in light of all the lies you've told, why should we believe you about anything?
0: <laughs> and the judge read that one. until he says, we're not asking that one. Let's get technical. All right. Outline. Do yeah. you have an outline? No. Do you have words on a page? No. What do you bring up to council table with you or the, we'll call it the lectern. Oh, oh. What are you bringing up to the lectern with you? I'm bringing a notebook that's been prepared. That somebody else has done an outline.
1: Well, yes, yeah, sometimes they do. It's just funny. So in the Anderson case, there's this wonderful team from Davis Polk with, with us and they would have them up to like three and four in the morning there's this massive group of people that come in from new york and they would have them up to three or four in the morning preparing these notebooks on whoever the witness is going to be the next day so one young woman enterprisingly with only three or four hours sleep decides instead of being back at the workroom, she'd go watch some of the testimony because i encouraged her so after one day she comes back and says Hey guys, do y'all realize he's not using those notebooks? He's not looking at him. He's not reading anything we're doing. (laughs) We're saying up to
0: three or four in the morning. Have you always been that way? Like I'm visualizing younger, even medium level lawyers at my own firm over the prospect to them of not having an outline. Oh, I have great notebooks that have information you know, But you personally no. do not use that to guide how you're doing cross.
1: No, but I would cheat on it. I mean, I will look. So we have. A, I have a notebook that will have the exhibit number if I want that piece of information in. So I'm a huge believer in chronology. So from the very beginning of the representation, our people start with the chronology. And so everything is things developed during the discovery. Things keep growing. The, the living, breathing document for me is a chronology. Okay. And if there is information in there that I think I want to put in, hey, Stella, would you put that in? Would you put that in? Would you put that in?
0: Like so, a timeline of, of what everything. occurred, the facts, yes. or timeline of the yes. discovery? Yes. Both. The timeline really of the facts. Okay. All right. Of the facts. And
1: I'll have a notebook for each witness. I mean, I live by the notebooks. I just don't know how I'm going to use them, all right? And I may not get to any of it, but I do believe in that. But what I want the freedom to do is really kind of the way you started out this conversation. We have a conversation. I believe crosses should be a conversation, too. I mean, there's certain basic things. I believe you treat every witness with respect and you don't beat up on anybody until or unless they've earned it in front of the jury. And they probably need to have earned it two or three times in the jury before you
0: are, get a little aggressive with them. need that juror's permission that you're going to go after someone. Absolutely. And until you've received it, you don't even know what it's like to get it. But when you get it, they're almost looking you, at you like, go, go get them.
1: You absolutely got
0: it. I, yeah. I mean, I, I totally agree with that.
1: The other thing is, is is that though I want the freedom to be listening. And so in my own mind, most witnesses I will start out with on cross, are they telling the truth, but even their truth could be true and still not negate the point I'm trying to make. If that's the case, then they and I are friends for the whole time. All right. And then I'm just looking for things that point out that even though what they're saying is true, this could also be true and they can't negate it. And if I've been nice enough to them through it, I don't do the depositions.
0: How long has it been since you took a deposition? Um,
1: Ballpark. Probably several years. The reason is I don't want the witness to get used to what I think is important and how I ask questions. So I've always believed that depositions basically are preparing the other side to get ready for trial. And why do I want to do that?
0: Is that something that Rusty Harden was born with, a little sense of reading people, or is that something you've intentionally worked at throughout your life? No, it's not something I've worked
1: at. I don't know whether you're born with it, but it always goes back to the same thing, David. It comes back to a fascination of people what makes them tick. Okay. And so I don't think it's anything unique to me. I think it's others don't let that genie out. I think it's a genie that exists in a bunch of people. So I don't think it's unique to me at all. I think it is not listening to people talking about how to be a trial lawyer. (laughs)
0: Yeah. I mean, you know, it, it, which really involves the biggest skill of the great trial lawyers yeah. is they're good listeners. They're yeah. actually able to read what's going on. Totally, totally
1: agree. Look, I tell people the biggest failing of trial lawyers is two is one is not listening. That's the biggest. And the second is their devotion to the leading question. Okay. I hate leading questions. Now, I, I lead a lot of times. It's by accident. And occasionally, I mean, I'll do it some, but I try not to. Because I tell people that the problem with leading questions is juries are so sophisticated. They realize if they're hearing only from the lawyer. All right? And I remember one time a young lawyer came back to me a long time ago when I was a prosecutor. Came to me and they were really proud. So how'd it go? Oh, it was great. I mean, I just, on cross, it was really great. I just had the witness, yes, no, yes, no, yes, no, yes, no really so does the jury know anything about that witness or do they just know what you think about the case and so I think leading questions are a mistake in so many ways and so I hate to say this but I think most of these books about how to try a case are written by people who don't try cases okay and many of the rules across are about people who don't cross I mean stop and think about it the, the question of why? The jury wants to know why Yes, I know if I'm right about my case. Now, if I'm defending a criminal case of a burglar caught in the building, that's really probably I want to keep everything pretty constrained. Right. <laughs> but if I'm trying the regular case, particularly civil cases, but also criminal, shouldn't I have enough courage to ask the question that everybody's mind and then figure out how to deal with it. Hmm. I had a case one time and Dan Cogdell is a great quote. He's also a member of the college in Houston. And I would ask these multiple personality disorder patients, a prosecutor decided to make it a federal crime to be pay the insurance. So the theory was that every time the hospital, psychiatric hospital sent a bill for treatment of multiple personality diagnoses, that was mail fraud because it wasn't a real legitimate diagnosis and they didn't believe in it. And so you had all these five medical professionals do it. What the prosecutor did not think through is he didn't put any of his prospective witnesses in the grand jury when he got his indictment. And I don't think he had right snapped on the idea that he was going to have to use as witnesses. I mean, I knew he intellectually. I don't think he thought it through. People who had been diagnosed with multiple personality disorders for over 30 years or 20 years, 15 years, some in self-mutilation so and so after cross-examination for six months, they finally surrendered. And then there was a mistrial and they would never try again. Cogdale, one day on the way to lunch, he had had about two weeks of me violating every rule. He was a co-counsel on another event. Why do you think my client's guilty? To the witness. And the, the witness, I just start listing all the reasons on on the board, because I didn't believe they were guilty.
0: Yeah, I mean, and so, then you're not afraid to no, hear what they say, and now you can actually you can deal, deal with, with exactly the real case. Let me shift into a couple areas we briefly touched on, but I want to drill a little further. One is, what's the biggest failure or disappointment that you've experienced in your professional career? And I ask not to knock you down, but we really learn more, seeing how people walk out of a a disappointment than when they're walking out of the courthouse and they just won the biggest case of their career. So if you had to pick a moment, a case, an event, biggest disappointment or most devastating loss? I think uh,
1: two, Arthur Anderson being found guilty which made the Supreme Court's reversal that much sweeter, but I tell people, you do realize I lost that case, right? <laughs> <laughs> we didn't win that case. The Supreme Court bailed us out, but we didn't win that case. And the other was a fairly recent one, just two or three years ago, representing some grandparents from Brazil who helped their daughter, according to the jury, after she absconded with a child from abusive father-husband. And I, I didn't think that they were going to find him guilty. On the civil side, you know, civil cases don't have quite the delineation because somebody's not going to penitentiary for it or somebody is not being ruined quite to the degree. So I'd have to think a little bit more about the civil side.
0: Let's talk about it. How do you walk it out? So it doesn't matter which case it's really, when you think of rusty, Harden, confident, bold, uh, trial lawyers, trial lawyer, the verdict comes back. It's not what you believed it should be. And it hurts. How do you walk that out? What are the actual things that you do to keep from going nuts or getting depressed or not wanting to do it anymore or all the potential options of a big loss? I'm just miserable for several days. I don't have a solution. That's real. That's yeah. real. And actually, the only thing
1: I disagree with is the word confident. I appreciate all the edge is. I'm much more driven by the fear of failure than I am the need to win. You know, I'm more driven by not doing something that causes it not to come out right. So when you lose, and any trial lawyer that doesn't lose cases, this is not trying cases, really, my view. When you lose, you second guess the hell out of yourself. What could I have done? What should I have done? But I do that all through the trial. Nobody in my firm wants to be around me once the jury goes out.
0: I am never confident. I have to ask this because I'm intrigued at 51 years old. I'm intrigued over career paths in the second half of a career. And I see you at 69. My suspicion is that uh, you don't have to practice law anymore. You're choosing to practice law. What are the questions that you ask yourself in deciding when, Am I going to slow down? And what are the questions you're asking yourself over? When am I going to hang up that beautiful flashy yellow tie and (laughs) just shift into a different season? What's the logic? What are the questions? What's the methodology of how you're processing? I think it's pretty simple.
1: What I've told the people in the firm now, the problem is the oldest people in the firm are in their 50s, early 50s but there are five or six in their forties and in their thirties rather. It's just 15 of us. But my arrangement with the firm is I'll quit when I either start embarrassing you or myself and y'all have got to be helpful in telling me because there's obviously a time when a trial lawyer to stop and some trial lawyers stay too long. And I definitely don't want to do that, but I don't feel like Jim Brown either. You know, Jim Brown, For those who ever listened to this may not know, I consider probably the greatest running back of all time. And he quit at the top of his career. I can't do that. And it doesn't appeal to me. When have you felt most powerless? Oh, when a jury disagreed with me and I've got to go through that. And at pretty much any loss, you know, we build our career seeking to have jurors agree with us. And as you know, We talk ourselves in to believing our old BS a lot so that even when we think we have a weak case, by the time the bell rings, we think it's a good case and a strong case. But I think any trial I've ever had where the jury disagreed with me,
0: it's like a crushing thing for me. Let's talk demonstratives. We talked about the easel, and I love the easel. I know you've brought in a boombox and played a song in closing argument in boombox. You clearly are willing to push traditional boundaries relative to demonstrative evidence. What are some of the kind of off the beaten path things over the years that you've done in trial related to non-traditional ways to communicate with a jury? One of my favorites is a little pink elephant.
1: And it really was sparked by the client. It was a dispute with the title company. And the title company had missed the fact that our client was going to build a bank building on the particular piece of property that specifically excluded financial institutions on it. They missed it and it was a lawsuit. And so uh, they claimed that the exclusion only was for the fee simple and not for the building. And so clients back in the room one day when we were doing it, and there's this woman that does graphics with me each trial that's been with me. We've probably done 20 trials. He says, you know, it's like that commercial. That's when this commercial's on. You know, they promised me a pony, (laughs) but instead of a pony, they give me this little tiny toy. And she's there. I said, Stacy, you got time tonight to go shopping? And she goes to Target and gets this tiny little pink pony. And next day, I put it on my desk. And the pony stayed there on the desk. It was just a little tiny little thing through the rest of the trial. And you could tell that the jury's wondering, what the frick is that pony about? (laughs) (laughs) And so they'd allow me in final argument to point out, you know, look, this is like the commercial, which everybody saw. I don't know whether you remember it or not, but I asked for it. They promised me a pony, and this is what I got. (laughs) You got to understand, The jury can't visualize what happened to whatever event you're talking about except through your words and not my words. My words mean I'm leading you and everybody knows we're not supposed to lead. You've heard that from TV, but you have got to describe things. You've got to take your mind back to exactly what you were thinking at the time or where you were or... Who always was in the meeting when this particular document was done? Where were they sitting? I don't want to just hear somebody. I want to be able to place. I want you to it'd be just like a movie. The jury is watching. You know, all a trial is is a conversation between me and you, the witness. The jury just happens to have dropped into your living room. They're sitting over here just watching what happened. The judge is going to rule if the lawyers get out of trouble. Otherwise, it's you and me. And I'm going to ask a question based on the last answer you gave. So you don't have to think how to talk. You don't have to think. Take the football analogy to the witness because we're constantly preparing them right now in a case we're in for depositions. So, so look, do you know football? Yeah. You watch football? Yeah. You know a little bit about? Okay. Well, imagine a scene like this where you've got a wide receiver and a defensive back. And a wide receiver is the only one who knows where he's going. And that's the questioner in a trial. The defensive back is the witness. And if the defensive back starts trying to guess where the wide receiver is going rather than moving with him, therefore responding to just the question without trying to figure out what helps or what hurts or take sides or anything, you're going to get undressed in front of 20 million people if you're on TV. And you'll get undressed in a courtroom if it's just you and them. So you don't have to do anything.
0: That's really good on witness prep. Two more areas I want to cover. One is how long in today's world, 2021, do you perceive to be a reasonable time for final argument that you can still keep Ah, the juror's attention?
1: Good question. I'm making it shorter than I used to think. Probably, you know, final argument to me has the least impact of the elements, I think it's kind of an ego trip for us lawyers and we get to preen and prune. the hate and it when you
0: say that because it's just so true. But. <laughs> but, but we love it.
1: All right. And it is exhilarating for the lawyer and the jury expects it and they want it. So it's not an imposition on them. When does it get that way? And I will tell you, one of the big problems I have now in Final Argument is how to deal with all of this technology and still not lose the jury's entrance. For instance, if the client can afford it, we always have dailies now. All right. You've got to have enough money involved to do it. But if, if you do, you got dailies. So what does that mean? Well, that means I'm always at the end of the day, picking out for people and telling them we need to be mindful of this for final argument. Well, now you're going to do these excerpts and you've been marketing, you know, following it all, and you got too much. And so now, Now you're in final argument and you keep throwing up on the screen stuff. It takes more time and more time. And I have finally moved back to less is better
0: in final argument. Um, Ballpark on time. Let's just say you were deciding this is a reasonable amount of time that any person should have to listen to me plead a case. How long? Hour. Opening statement, I've heard you're short, that you are shorter than most people. I'm afraid
1: of overpromising. And I want the jury to discover the case with me. So that's another place I fly in the face of most people. And I think most people are probably right and I'm wrong, but it's still. It it's works still, for you. It works for me. And, and that, how
0: long, how long are you going for in that time? Period?
1: 30 minutes. And I'm really just trying to set the tone, but I want the jury to feel like, you know, they haven't heard everything. We trial lawyers and all the experts say, and I'm sure they're right. That imprimatur and repeat, repeat is the good thing for them in opening statement, et cetera. If I've got access to jury selection the way I hope and think it should be done, then I don't need to try my case in opening statement. And I'm always bothered
0: by overpromising. Last area, the American College of Trial Lawyers. What does the college mean to you? It means
1: recognition of the best traits of what trial lawyers are supposed to Exercise and live up to. It means an acknowledgment that you played it by the rules. You were successful, but that's not the biggest measure in my view. The biggest measure is you tried to do it the right way. And
0: you are in an association with others who tried to do it the right way. If you were to give one or two pieces of advice to younger lawyers and law students, what would you give
1: them? I think... It would be, it's hard to say this without sounding trite, but I think that it can be such a wonderfully exhilarating profession that you got to learn to enjoy it and smell the flowers while you're doing it. I don't think 2,500 hours a year is the way to do it. I don't think 2,000 hours a year is a way to do it. I think... Aggressively and honestly representing your client, but also having time for other things in life and family
0: is just as important. Rusty, thank you for your time. What a treat. I hope you enjoy the rest of your time in Florida.
1: Well, I enjoyed this. Uh, This was good.
0: I'm Dave Paul. Thank you for listening to Trial Tested. Episodes drop on Thursdays. Subscribe now to catch every discussion.